We all know that the carpenter has his tools, hammers and nails and measuring instruments, and we know that doctors have their tools, surgeons have scalpels, and nurses who are handing out medications. What are the housekeeper's tools? Mops, brooms? All these people have tools that we can see. What about the leader's tools? How does the leader lead? Now, we can make analogies to the leader who leads as if he was carrying a hammer and everybody else was a nail, but that is not the kind of leadership we're teaching with loving care. We are teaching the kind of leadership that advances through trust, through recognizing that we're fellow adults working toward a common purpose to give the best care we can to everybody out there. Now, everybody agrees with that objective. It's as if it's a goal and there are all these different ways to reach it. And some people want to race down that road. Some people want to drive a tank down that road. Loving leaders find ways down the road by being pioneers, by opening the pathways so that people want to follow them to the goal. So they make the goal as appealing and as meaningful as possible. That's what every really good leader does. They clarify a vision. They set it forth. They begin to draw followers, not only because of their approach and their personality, they draw followers because they're drawing people who see that vision, because the leader has made it clear and important. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. All three engines up and burning. 2, 1, 0, and liftoff. Well, there it is, the sound of a rocket taking off, the launch. And today that means another edition of our podcast, Rocket Science for Leaders. I'm Uri Chapman. Why do we call it Rocket Science for Leaders? It's partly to get your attention, but it's also to reinforce the idea that leadership is a lot more complicated than most people think. Uh, we've got doctors and nurses and physical therapists and accountants who've been promoted to leadership positions and their training is not in leadership. Their training is in other professions, but for one reason or another, sometimes good reasons, sometimes bad, they've been promoted up to the leader's position. Here they are in charge, and they're wondering what to do, and the tendency is for each person, for each leader to default to what they know best. That may be defaulting to the way they were raised, and if they were raised by a tyrannical parent, they may have decided to become one themselves, or hopefully they've decided if they're going to a loving care environment that they're gonna do the opposite of tyrannical and do something that's a lot more loving. In the middle is where we're seeking. Not tyrannical, but tough-minded. Not touchy-feely, but tender-hearted. Tough-minded, tender-hearted. Competent and compassionate. Where's the rocket science in that? It's first recognizing the complexity of the problem and then realizing the similarities between physics and chemistry and what leaders do. So here's what I mean by that. I use certain words right now. And as you listen to me, your brain chemistry is moving, receiving, changing, because our brain chemistry is so dynamic that it's always in a state of change. What leaders are doing is they're energy managers. They're impacting the energy of the people around them. That's physics and chemistry. And those include the tools of a leader. 
what are those specific tools, rounding? So a leader does rounds like a doctor says rounds. When a doctor does rounds to check on a patient, that doctor, she or he, will be determining what's wrong and how to fix it. As loving leaders, we want to be going out looking for what's right and how to build on it. It would be nice if all doctors were looking how to build on the patient's health, and many do. But the inclination in medicine is to focus on what's wrong. And strong leaders are effective because they've figured out how to focus on what's right and how to build from that. They understand the physics. They understand the dynamic of how they ask questions and how they approach colleagues. So if I'm the CEO, which I was in three different organizations, and I come up on the floor and I approach a first-line nurse and she sees me coming, hopefully she's thinking, this is good. I feel more energized. I respect the person coming towards me. And I'm reflecting the same thing. As I approach her, I already recognize and respect her. Why? She or he is out there on the first line. They're doing a job I'm not doing, and I have got to respect that before I come up on that floor. I have got to think to myself, that nurse is doing an incredibly tough job. Day after day, she's facing into the agony, the tenderness that she needs to bring is hard because it's a hard problem. She approaches a patient with cancer. She has to look at the patient's distorted figure. Perhaps it's been a mastectomy, and the woman is suffering a range of pain and difficulty. Maybe the cancer has been cured, in quotes, but the patient needs more than that. She needs to be healed. That means that patient needs kindness and compassion and understanding for what she's going through so that we can do what? So that that nurse can energize her to face into the challenges of cancer that will happen after the patient goes home. It is important for leaders to think the same way toward the people they lead. As I'm approaching that nurse, as I'm coming down the hallway, she sees me, I see her, my thought process has to be here as an individual facing unique challenges, not just patients. She's got challenges at home that may be leaking into her awareness. How do I honor her, support her, and respect her so that when I leave, she's better than she was before I walked up? She's stronger. She's more encouraged. She feels she's being supported because that is the first line of every leader. The first job of every leader is to take care of the people that take care of people. The first job of every leader is to take care of the people that take care of people. So communication is important. When a first-line caregiver sees a leader coming, again, let's go back to the nurse's floor, they may think that individual is going to ask, have you got your charts done? Have you completed your budget? Those are reasonable questions, but they may not advance this notion of loving care we've been talking about. So it's okay to ask the budget questions and also to ask about things like, are the charts done? But if those are the only questions we ever ask, we haven't sent the right signal. What if you ask that nurse, how do you give loving care? And it's best of all, if you, if you lead into a question like that, I think, by doing something I've done a lot myself. What I will say to the nurse, which shows my respect for her or his position, is I say to him, you know, I am not up here all the time like you are. I am not the obstetrics nurse who's reaching into the patient to help that baby out. I am not the individual who is the housekeeper going back to clean up after a birth. 
I'm the guy in the coat and tie that the patient doesn't need at all. After all, no one comes into a hospital, you know, into the ER and says, hey, uh, you know, got enough executives here? Executives are so much less important than they think, except in one way. Executives are the ones best in position to raise the energy and to inspire the commitment and to provide the concrete support for that first-line staff by addressing things like benefits, by addressing things like the way staff members are treated, by offering support. So I want to I talk with you a little bit further about a couple of ways that address uh, communication, particularly communication in caregiver settings. I'd like to talk with you today about a person I call the invisible caregiver and the way in which leaders use uh, the I word, sometimes a little too much, and I'll say especially my fellow males. There's been an awful lot of time talking about I and me. I, I noticed this when I was playing golf one day uh, with a foursome and a physician friend, doctor in the group, uh, shared with the group in as offhand a tone as he could that he had stomach cancer. Well, before two of us could offer sympathy, the fourth person, a CEO, of course, said, well, you know, I have a friend who's got that diagnosis, and he, and the CEO went on and on. He never offered a word of sympathy, even when I and my other friend tried to you know, sort of edge him out of the conversation. He kept rolling. He wanted to tell everybody about his experience. Meanwhile, the doctor, who's just told us he's got stomach cancer, who's supporting him? Unfortunately, we've all been guilty of that. We, we have this temptation, you know, without meaning harm. We can become chronically self-referential. Someone tells us a story, and before they finish, we launch our own I story. So, you know, not every I user is an egomaniac, and, and whether we say I or not, the truth is we really are quietly and quickly considering our own experience when someone shares theirs, unless we really are saint-like and we're fully able to listen carefully and lovingly to the story of another. Alpha male leaders, including me, I've sure been accused of that. We can be the worst I users in the world. And, you know, when CEOs are surrounded with uh, sycophants, you know, people that just say, hey, boss, you're a great boss, you know, laugh at every joke. And when CEOs have been in that position for a while, they can fall prey to the idea uh, that one person is more important than the others, and that's them. I mean, really, how many times have you heard a leader call the first-line staff lower-level employees? They don't mean to be demeaning, but subconsciously they may be thinking that first-line caregivers matter less than the high-paid executives in the C-suite. I don't care how many CEOs may be listening to me now or thinking, well, I don't do that. Face into the truth, you probably do. And if you're denying it, that means you're, you're living on an alternative reality channel. The first way to overcome that is this. First, you change the thinking, and the language will change. Remember, no ER patient comes into the hospital seeking an executive. Patients want care only from those so-called low-paid, lower-level employees, the caregivers, the first-line people, the ones that really matter. So in that sense, it's the CEOs that are the furthest out in the concentric circles that surround the patient. Imagine care like this. Imagine the patient in the middle of the circle, and in the next level out, you've got the first-line caregivers, and in the next line out, you've got ancillary caregivers that support those first-line caregivers, and finally, you work your way all the way out to the senior executives. The sacred encounter between caregiver and patient happens at the bedside, or it happens in other parts of the hospital where direct care is given now. This provides an opportunity to reinforce that in a hospital or a hospice or a nursing home, 
everyone is a caregiver. Every single person is a caregiver in a loving organization. That means the accountants. That means the housekeeping staff. That means every executive. Because executives' job, remember, take care of the people that take care of people. So there's a way for you to kind of get in touch with that as a leader. Go put on a housekeeping uniform and work half a shift once a month for a year, shoulder to shoulder with those often invisible caregivers. You want to find out how invisible a housekeeper is? Do as I've done for years and years. Go put on a housekeeping uniform. Go on out into the setting. And if you do that in the way that a housekeeper would, and the setting is large enough, you may not even be seen. That's what happened to me. I was running Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, a 1,000-bed hospital. At the time, in the 80s, 6,000 employees. I put on a housekeeping uniform, went out into the setting, began working side-by-side with a housekeeper. I want to say a person who was working in housekeeping rather than a housekeeper. And guess what? First thing I noticed, people didn't even see me. That was good because I got a little bit of a sense of how that housekeeper felt. Humility. Humility itself may arrive in your heart as you walk the halls ignored because of just one difference. The uniform. Over 35 years of engaging this practice successfully in three different hospital settings, I've recommended to hundreds of leaders, please go out and give it a try. Don't do it for show. Don't go out for 15 minutes for the hospital newspaper to have your picture taken. Go out there and commit regularly to working part of a shift in a meaningful way with the person who's doing that job, the housekeeper, the linen services worker, the dietary employee, the radiologic technologist. By the way, make sure you don't get in their way. All the times I've recommended that, only two or three leaders have ever taken me up on the job, and every single time one of them has done that, they've said to me, wow, that was humbling. And guess what? I know for a fact that they became better leaders beforehand. It was much easier for them to be compassionate as well as tough-minded toward the people they're serving. That includes the reason a hospital, hospice, or nursing home is there. It's the patients. This has been Rocket Science for Leaders, and I'm Erie Chapman, urging and encouraging all of you to live love, not fear.